So we ended up after our text battling back and forth that we were going to do the 12th and 13th chapter and leave uh, Brandon next week to pull it all together. So I want to read in the bulletin the leaving religion because tonight's topic and what we're going to get into has a lot to do with that leaving religion. Leaving religion is call, a call to adventure. As humans, we labor to erect sturdy, safe cathedrals to protect our lives. We want easy, affordable religion, something that doesn't demand too much of us. When Rome's emperor Nero turned against the Christians, Jewish believers found an easy solution, Judaism. As a religion recognized by Rome, joining the synagogue offered safety, but worship, vocation, and God cannot be squeezed into our safe cathedrals. So Hebrews calls these believers and us into adventure, something costly, sometimes costly, but transformative. To journey the long, difficult road of faith, engaging Jesus' life means departing from religious cathedrals. So often we get caught up in that. And so the book of Hebrews is all about faith. Let's take a quick reminder of some of the things we learned in the early chapters of Hebrews, so we know that we're all on the same page. The, the book starts off in chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In these days, he's spoken to us by his Son, by Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system, better than the sacrifice, better than the tabernacle, better than the temple, better than the priesthood, better even than the fathers and the prophets. In verse 3, he says all of this was done by his glory, by his person, his power, and he purged our sin. In verse 4, it talked about being better than the angels. And so Jesus was being pointed out as the better. In chapter 2, we read in the first verse, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We must pay attention, carefully and cautiously apply what we hear and what we read in the Word of God. In verses 8, at the end of verse 8 through 11, another key passage that he gives us, he says, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. And he, by grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through their sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to be called to call them brethren. Speaking of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, we saw that the writer of Hebrews started to talk about endurance and obedience. The proof characteristics of your faith. If you are a person of faith and you have an understanding in the belief system we call Christianity and a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
then the characteristics that will follow that life are obedience and endurance. And we'll see more about that as we get into the chapters 12 and 13. In chapter 4, we have the promise of entering his rest. Chapter 4, verse 10, we read, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Speaking of Jesus entering his rest, he said it was finished, he returned to glory. In verse 11, we are told to be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. We as Christians need to understand that we need to rest in Jesus. Our faith, our belief, our trust is in Jesus Christ. It is not in the works. In this case, and who they were talking about in the Hebrews, it wasn't in their religious system. It was in Jesus whom we have to trust. Be diligent. Enter that rest. Don't be disobedient. Then let's jump to chapter 10. Verses 19 to 23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then last week in chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And in verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The need of coming into a relationship with Jesus is by faith. It's by believing in the finished work of the cross. And then we saw uh, Pastor Brandon pointed out that there were 18 by faiths in this chapter, each showing an example of obedience and endurance. Talked about Noah in verse 7, who had to build an ark. He had to do it a certain way. He had to be obedient to the plan. Had to use gopher wood, whatever that is. Uh, It took him a long time to build this boat, so he had to be endurance. I was wondering what his neighbor was saying while he was building that boat for all those years. You know, what's going on with that? So he had to endure. Abraham left his land his home, his family. He, wasn't, he didn't know where he was going. None of us would take a trip today without mapping it out and knowing where we're going. You hikers that are out there, you even know where you're going when you take a five-mile hike. You know, you know the path that you want to take. Um, but Abraham left his land. Sarah received strength to do the impossible. Verse 11, 17, Abraham offered up Isaac, his only begotten son, it says, the son of the promise, not Ishmael, the son of the flesh, but he offered up the son of the promise. In verses 20 and 21, Isaac and Jacob continued to obey, and they expected the promise. Joseph obeyed the teaching of his father, and he endured the imprisonment in Egypt. In verses 23 to 29, Moses refused to be called an Egyptian. 
he forsook the pleasure of sin and he took on the reproach of the Jewish people and the reproach of Christ. And others by faith passed through the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho came down. Rahab, a harlot, a Gentile, was saved, and many others. And then, in verses 39 and 40, leading up to our chapters we're going to look at, we read, And all these things, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should be made, not be made perfect apart from us. I did all this bragging about these 18 things, these 18 people, these things that were going on there, and yet that's not what it's all about. They did not receive the promise, what God had provided and promised for us. What encouragement for us these examples should be when we're tempted to be discouraged. I know some of you have been discouraged. I know some of you are discouraged. But what an example these people of faith, these situations of faith should be for us. These victories should encourage us. They should give us hope. You know, for some of them, as you read the story, if you go back and read their story in the Old Testament, it seemed like their victory would never come. Just think of Joshua and the battle plan that was given to him. Marching. Now, he's a general. He's a soldier. He's familiar with swords and spears and things. And he's told to walk around the walls seven times and say nothing and do nothing. That had to be a little bit traumatic for him. And so he did it, and the walls came down. And that should be encouraging for us. Don't we sometimes just run out of faith when things pile up on us? There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Can't see our way out of this mess. And we've been trying so hard. We've really been working hard at it. But we just want to give up. These all stayed true. They all trusted and they all obeyed and they all endured. And that was the excess. They were the example of their faith. So I mentioned that they didn't come into the promise. How the word promise is used as a declaration of what God said that he would do. It's interesting that um, these heard and believed. But look how the word promise was passed out. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he, speaking of Abraham, obtained the promise. And then flip over to 9.15. says that we receive the promise through the high priest. Flip over to 10.36. For you have read of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then in chapter 11, verse 13, these, speaking of all the people that has gone before, all died in faith, not having received the promise. The patriarchs died in faith, not receiving the promise. And then in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, willing to go to the final 
a place of testing of his obedience, Abraham received the promise. And then in verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteous, righteousness, obtained promises. The prophets, Samuel and the prophets is who he's speaking about there. They received the promise. Faith, they all received the promise and they all acted upon it. So in chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because we have these great examples, we are told to run the race and to do it with, uh, with all of our hearts, to do it and to finish it. We are told to lay aside every weight or every hindrance and every sin. Now, the sin part's pretty easy. If you've got sin in your life and you know it's sin and the Word of God calls it out or the Holy Spirit reveals it to you and it's sin, get rid of it. Stop doing it. That's an easy one. But what about these weights? What is it talking about, these weights that hinder you? Those are the little things that you allow yourself to do that do not move you forward in your relationship with God. It could be just time wasters. It could be just simple things that just waste your time that could be used for something better. And it says to look to Jesus, which Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the place of enduring the cross. So seeing those who have received the promise and died in it, if they endured and they obeyed with courage, then we should be willing to run this race with patience and without wavering. No matter how hopeless our situation seems to us. These examples of the past had the promise. All of them had the promise. But we have Jesus. We have Jesus. We have Jesus so much more than what they based their obedience and their endurance on. We have Jesus. In Acts 20, 24, Paul pictured himself as a runner in a, in a race. He had to finish And nothing could keep Paul from running that race with joy. Paul speaks of that as his race. He had had his race to run. And we have our own races to run. But God calls us to finish it with joy. And that only happens when we learn to endure. When we learn to handle the things that are brought our way. So in verse 2 there, it says, looking to Jesus. In the New American Standard, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I like that. The Greek word for looking is a much fuller word and language that's being used there than we could ever put it into English. Uh, um, It has a preposition right in the middle of it. And so the right way to read it would be something like this, which turns the look away from everything else 
we are to look away from all just to Jesus. So it's not like looking to Jesus and still keeping our eye on the things in the world. It's to basically turn completely away and focus on him only. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He authored it. He knew all of our stories well before we were ever born. He was there at creation. He knew all of us before the foundation of the earth. He is the author of our faith. And he is the finisher also. He is the one who said, it is finished. And with that declaration, his work was done. He was obedient to his father. He finished his race. And it was done for the joy that was set before him. The idea of he who has begun a good work in you, and he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, we read that in Philippians 1.6, is comforting indeed for Christians that are going through a period of discouragement. You know, Jesus did not enjoy the cross. That's not what it says. It says, for the joy that was set before him. It doesn't mean that he enjoyed the cross. But he could look past the horror of the cross. The pain of the cross, the shame of the cross, to enjoy the joy, the joy that was beyond the cross. And it, believe it or not, you're it. You're the joy that he could see. You're the joy that caused him to go to the cross. I'm the joy that he went to the cross for so that he knew one day we would all be gathered together here on a Sunday night, having a Bible study, eating some dinner, praying for one another and caring for one another. And that brought him joy knowing that what he was doing on the cross was going to make that possible, was going to make us one in Christ. This mentality that the writer is trying to get to the people, don't depend on Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Daniel and all the people that you've known about in the history. Turn your eyes and fix them on Jesus. This is the encouragement that they needed to be able to maintain their faith. Despising the shame. You know, one of the greatest elements in the passion of the Christ is the shame that was involved. The whipping certainly hurt. The plucking out of the beard hurt. The nailing hurt. But there was such shame, extreme shame. Jesus didn't welcome it, but he took it. He endured it. It actually says he despised it, but it was necessary for him to have that victory. Think about the shame that Jesus bore. Jesus bore a shameful accusation. The people blasphemed. He was telling them the truth. He was telling them who he was, and they blasphemed and wouldn't have anything to do with him. Jesus bore a shameful mocking. Jesus before a shameful beating. A shameful crown was put upon his head and he wore a shameful robe. He even had to endure shameful insults while on the cross, while being nailed to it, while he was praying for his adversaries. He bore that shame. Because he wanted the joy that came with it. We are told in verses 3 and 4 to consider Jesus. If the witnesses don't encourage your faith, 
the Abraham, the Isaac, Jacob, the Noah, and all those stories that we have learned, then consider Jesus. Just consider Jesus. He is our example of obedience and endurance. These verses, along with chapter 4, 14 to 16, are really the key verses of Hebrews. I'll read you the ones from 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Key verses to understanding Hebrews and the idea of leaving religion. Our faith, our trust is in Jesus, not in the religious system that we might be a part of. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, Therefore, I obey. What a difference, huh? Because we are Christians, because we have become people of faith, we obey. That was a quote from Tim Keller. Verses 5 to 11, we are told that God uses tough times in our lives. He chastens us to mold and to shape us, sometimes to correct us. But sometimes it's not necessarily correction. It's just Fine-tuning who we are. I like the story in Jeremiah 18 where it talks about the potter and the clay in his hand and he was making it, became marred in his hand and he pushed it down and back into a clay ball and he started over. And you know what? That's a painful process for that piece of clay. Some of us have experienced that. We thought we were getting to be this vessel and all of a sudden we got a little prideful because we thought we were going to be a chosen vessel. And he says, no, no, no. And then he made us into a spittoon or something you know so he makes us into something (laughs) less honorable as it pleased the potter but being in the potter's hands is where we want to be we want him molding us and shaping us and he uses the circumstances of life that spinning wheel are the circumstances of life there might be a little pebble in that clay which he's almost done with the thing and then that pebble shows up his hand hits it and it makes a line all the way across the clay and he has to start over or a piece of straw, or an air bubble, something simple like that. But circumstances of your life and my life are being used for God to teach us who he wants us to be. But like a loving father is the example that's given there in those verses. It's always done in love. It may not feel loving. It might be a lot of pressure. It might be some real angst with it, but it's done in love. We are told we all need correction from time to time. Only the most proud would say, I don't need the correction or the chastening or the developing by the Lord. We all need it. In verse 12, 12, he starts to give us applications um, about being, being strong. So in verses 12 to 13, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame 
may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Saying, get strong. Like a coach telling the team at halftime, hey guys, you got to work together. You got to push harder. You got to push through the pain. Get strong. And then in verses 14 to 17, he says, get right. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Peace with all people means peace with all people. In an organization like the church, an organism, excuse me, like the church, there can't be bitterness between us. We are told, we are given instructions that that's not acceptable. We need to work through that. Well, we can have some disagreements. We can disagree on different things, but we can't have a bitterness. We can't have a bitter attitude. We're to have peace with all people. And then holiness with God. You know, discouragement sometimes can make us sloppy in our relationships. Unconcerned about people. We really don't care anymore because we're, we're so discouraged. We just, you know what? She doesn't like me. He doesn't like me. I don't really care. That's what happens. And that becomes a root of bitterness. And then bitterness comes in. When, as far as with God, a lack of holiness is a critical obstacle to that close relationship with God. We compromise a little here and a little there. You know, it talks about us drifting away. It's never we turn away. It's never we make a conscious decision. I'm going to turn my back on God and walk away. That doesn't happen. We drift away. It's little by little that we fall away. We excuse things as it's okay. I have liberty in that area. I have more liberty in that area. God has increased my liberty in that area. Well, you better check that out if God's increasing the liberty in areas where you're causing others to stumble because I doubt that that's what he's doing. In verse 15, it says we could fall short of the grace of God into legalism. Legalism is such a problem when it comes into a church. When our evaluation of each other is based on how you perform or don't perform according to my standards how you look, how you dress, how you act, how you interpret scripture. When that starts to happen in a church, it is a dangerous thing and it starts to separate people. We have to be careful of that. Christians need to remember the amount of grace that we have received, especially when we're giving out grace to others. We received it. We need to give it out. We used to sing freely, freely. You have received freely, freely give. Bitterness, a root of bitterness, bears bitter fruit. It's possible for the seed of bitterness to be sown in a community. And though nothing at the beginning, because it's just one little relationship, one little couple that's having a problem, two guys that don't talk to each other anymore, two ladies who, who um, avoid each other in the, in the dining room, a little root of bitterness brings fruit of it. It can be sown in a community and nothing can happen for a long time. But eventually, in due time, it will bear its fruit. 
In verses 18 to 24, it talks about getting bold. Talks about the mountains of God. It says in verse 18, For you have not come to this mountain, but in verse 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion. So the two different mountains. We are in a different place. Our relationship with God is different. It's, it's not modeled after Israel and the experience that they had on Mount Sinai. There they couldn't go to the mountain. They couldn't uh, go on it. It was a holy mountain. God would kill them if it went on there. If a beast went on to the mountain, they had to stone it or shoot it with a bow and arrow was what the instruction said. What a difference. When we come to God's mountain, Mount Zion or Golgotha, the name of the hill upon which Jerusalem sits, it's an interesting contrast. Consider these contrasts. Mount Sinai, fear and terror. People were afraid. People were afraid of the hearing the voice, the rumbling. Mount Zion, love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai was out in a desert place. Mount Zion is the city of the living God. Mount Sinai dealt with earthly things. Mount Zion deals with heavenly things. Even the tabernacle and the temple being finishing their, their journey there was a model of heaven. Mount Sinai, only Moses could go up on the mountain. Mount Zion, everyone can come. That's exciting. Moses was the mediator at Mount Sinai. Jesus is our mediator and our advocate at Zion. Mount Sinai was very exclusive. Mount Zion is very inclusive. And Mount Sinai dealt with the law, and Mount Zion deals with grace. So these two mountains are contrasted here by the writer of Hebrews to let us know that there is a difference between what they had and what we have. We get to go to Mount Zion. So when we're discouraged, we're encouraged there in verse 1 to look to Jesus, to consider Jesus, We're told to get strong. We're told to get right with God. We're told to be bold. And then in verses 25 to 29, he actually says, watch out. Listen to the voice of God. Listen to the word of God. Remember in chapter 4, verse 12, we looked at this verse. For the word of God, the book that you're holding in your lap, the words that came from Jesus, from God, by the Holy Spirit, through the prophets and through the people who penned it, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The only book that you can sit down with by yourself, read it, and that can rip you apart. The only book that you can sit down and read it, and it can just give you great joy and great healing. It's the only book that's written to tell you about the author and not the plot or the characters. There's a plot, and there are characters, but the purpose of the Word of God is it's a living and active book. Always has been, and it always will be. So in chapter 13, the conclusion, this dissertation of faith, should help us with our Christian living. He says in verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Well, how can we do that if we have the bitterness and the things that are going on and things that are picking on each other? Well, we have all those people of faith. We can look at them and see that they were successful. God lifted them up. He lifted them here in chapter 11. But we're told in chapter 12, we have Jesus. So we can have brotherly love. 
In verse 2, it says, be hospitable. Entertain strangers, not best friends. When was the last time any of us invited a stranger into our home for dinner? Somebody that we barely know. Maybe somebody new in the fellowship and said, hey, I'd like to get to know you. Why don't you come on over for dinner next Tuesday night and come to our house? We're quick to invite our buddies, the ones we like, the ones we can talk with, the ones who seem to go along with our theology and our thinking. But when was the last time we just invited a stranger, a strange couple to come into our house and just have fellowship with them? Be hospital, entertain strangers, not just your best friends. Remember the prisoners and those who are mistreated. Marriage is honorable and everything about marriage is honorable. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment, wanting to have more. Often covetousness and greed are excused. Sometimes they're even admired in today's culture as simply called ambition. That guy worked hard. That guy took nothing And now he's a millionaire or a billionaire. Wow, isn't that great? And everybody looks at him and everybody says, man, he must be content. One millionaire was quoted as saying, was asked the question, when will you have enough money? He said, when I have one more million. So he'll never be happy because he's not content. Be content with such things as you have. Contentment has much more to do with what you are on the inside than what you have on the outside. Verses 5 and 6, some of my favorite verses. I'm going to read you a couple things from uh, some people who have given thought to these verses, but I've always loved this one. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he, God, himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Spurgeon explains the Greek text here. There are five negatives in the way that that is said. In the English language, we can't do that. So here is a... um, translation that would tell you how the five-fold negative would have been in the Greek. It's as though it would read like this. I will not, not leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. Let me read it to you again. I will not, not leave thee. I will never, no, never forsake thee. That's kind of a, a, a literal translation of the Greek. Um, Spurgeon was quoted when he was speaking to a group of pastors about this verse. He said this, I cannot under the influence of this grand text find any room for doubt or fear. I cannot stand here and be miserable tonight. I am not going to attempt such a thing But I cannot be despondent with such a text as this. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. 
he goes on. I hope we could grow to this. I defy the devil himself to mention circumstances, circumstances under which I ought to be miserable if this text is true. I defy the devil himself to mention circumstances under which I ought to be miserable if this text is true. Child of God, Spurgeon continues, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you can realize this precious text. He said he will never leave you or forsake you, you, Patmos guys. No matter what challenges you're having, no matter how little sleep you got, no matter that you weren't given the privilege of a shower today, no matter that you're passing out flyers to people who are brutal to you on the streets of Watts or down on the beaches of Orange County, he said he would never leave you or forsake you. So you may boldly say, I will not fear what man can do to me. That is something for us to know and something for us to true. My favorite, my utmost, my, uh, my utmost for his highest. Have any of you read that devotional? It's a great devotional. My very favorite out of the whole 365 is June 5th on these verses, okay? Let me read it to you, please. June 5th, God say so. He has said so that we may boldly say, not timidly say, boldly say. Here's what Oswald Chambers had to say. My say so is to be built on God's say so. God says, I will never leave you. Then I, with good courage, say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear I will not be haunted by apprehension. This does not mean that I will not be tempted to fear, but I will remember God's say so. I will be full of courage like a child bucking himself up to reach the standard his father wants. Faith in many a one falters when the apprehensions come. They forget the meaning of God's say so. Forget to take a deep breath. Spiritually, the only way to get the dread out, the dread taken out of us is to listen to God's say so. And I think sometimes that's so important for us to remind each other, hey, take a deep breath and pray. Sometimes we need that. What are you dreading? What are you afraid of? You're not a coward about it. You are going to face it. But there is a feeling of dread when there is nothing and no one to help you. Say, but the Lord is my helper this second in my present outlook. Are you learning to say things after listening to God or are you saying things and trying to make God's word fit in? Get a hold of the father's say so and then say with good courage, I will not fear. It does not matter what evil or wrong may be in the way. He has said, I will never leave thee. Frailty and tiredness is another thing that gets in between God's say-so. Oswald Chambers continues, gets in between God's say-so and our say-so. When we realize how feeble we are in facing difficulties, but difficulties become like giants 
and we become like grasshoppers. And God becomes a non-entity. Remember God's say-so. I will in no wise fail you. Have we learned to sing after hearing God's keynote? Are we always possessed with the courage to say, The Lord is my helper? Or are we succumbing? The Lord has said he will never leave us or forsake us. So we may quietly say, I will not fear what man can be. No, we can boldly say it because we have that promise. We have God's say-so. In verse 7, remember those who rule over you and have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. So important that you recognize and follow godly leaders. You, as part of the body of Christ, part of the organism we call the church, should constantly be praying for those in leadership. But you should also be watching those in leadership. And you should challenge leadership when you see them doing something that doesn't seem to fit with the word of God or with their teaching. would always appreciate it if any of you have any criticisms that you, be, you feel free to come to myself or Pastor Brandon or any of the leaders here at the church and say, hey, I don't know what's going on with that or I don't know what's going on with this and not to hold it back. We'd hope we'd have that kind of an open relationship with our family. Paul advised Timothy along the same lines. He says, take heed to yourself, Timothy, and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In verses 8 to 17, he now takes us and talks to us about worship. The whole premise of what we've learned on faith in the book of Hebrews brings us to this concluding idea of faith. The enduring principle, the unchanging nature of Jesus in verse 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His unchanging nature... The theologians call that immutability of Jesus Christ could be inferred regarding this, his deity. This verse can let you know that he was here before time. He was here in the beginning. He was here in the Old Testament. He was here when Jesus walked the earth. He's been here since then. He's here all the time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change over the ages. Neither does Jesus, who is God. Yesterday, today, and forever, his unchanging nature provides a measure for all our Christian conduct, particularly in the word and in worship. The nature of Jesus, as it is revealed in the Bible, is the same nature of Jesus that should be seen in the church today. When we look at his word and we look at the way that he was as he walked the earth, the world outside should be able to look at you and me And see Jesus in the way that we behave ourselves with each other, the way that we love each other, the way that we conduct ourselves with each other. The world should be able to see Jesus when he looks at us, when it looks at us. Verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. If we get verse 8. And we stay with it. We won't be carried away by the various and strange doctrines. We need to just keep Jesus as the main things. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Consider Jesus. Locking your eyes on Jesus. Verse 12, it says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify his people with his own blood, 
suffered outside the gate. It's Jesus that that sanctifies you and me. And the process of sanctification is a growing closer to and closer with the Lord, letting him take a greater position in your life and becoming like that. But it's the work that he and the Holy Spirit does. It's not something you do by taking your four chapters a day and turning it into six. That won't sanctify you. I promise you it won't. It will frustrate you because you won't make it one day. Okay? And when you get six knocks down, you'll start to feel pretty good about yourself. And you say, I can do eight. And I can do ten. And that kind of legalistic approach to it is not what's ever going to sanctify us as the body of Christ as individual Christians. What's going to sanctify us is his Holy Spirit working within us. Then you won't be satisfied with eight chapters a day. You'll want to read more. You'll say, can I leave the light on a little longer? Because I really want to read the rest of this book. Well, how many chapters do you have to go? 26? Okay. Well, that's the way that will happen when we let Jesus sanctify us. Don't You can't be sanctified with a bunch of conditions. In verse 15, we are to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And... Um, The church knows this. I haven't shared this with the Patmos guys yet. So guys, listen up. Um, Those of you who don't sing by yourselves, you kind of sing congregationally, but you don't really sing and worship. I have an idea for you. Okay. They they know it. Some of them might even do it. And I know you guys love duct tape, right? You all, all guys, every guy loves duct tape. Get yourself one of those plastic sleeves and get some courses and type them up and print them out and then duct tape them on your shower. Okay. And when you're going to take a shower, let it out. Just sing your heart out. Because that's what it's saying for us to do. We should always be whistling and singing and happy in the Lord. And that's a hard discipline for us to get, and especially for guys to get. But whistle a happy tune. Sing a song. Find two, if, two, if two or three of you are walking someplace, sing a little chorus as you walk. It will change your outlook on the day, on the circumstances, on the thing. That's what he's telling us to do. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In verses 20 to 21, the writer ends with this prayer. On behalf of those who have heard these words of God, of his glory, of his perfection, of his salvation... And I think it's important as we read this prayer that we remember that epistles of the early church, whether the Pauline epistles or the book of Hebrews or the the general epistles that we'll be going into, they were made to be read in church. Wouldn't it be fun to go to church where every time you went to church, they read a chapter of an epistle and that was just part of their liturgy. That was part of what happened in church. We're just going to read through these things. We're going to teach our regular teaching, but we're going to make sure that we read a chapter because that's the way this was done. That's the way Hebrews would have been done. This letter would have been read probably in one sitting to a church. So verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you, which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. On behalf of those who heard the words of God of his glory, 
That's who he's praying about. In verse 21, the word for complete here is a little different than the word that is usually used for perfect or complete. That word usually means um, being made whole and that, you know, be perfect as I am perfect. Jesus said that means being uh, kind of complete. But this is different. This word that is used here is to be completely equipped um, for the saints, being made ready, being made fit. So what he's saying there, he says, make you complete. He's praying to God to make you complete, make you fit for the journey, make you fit for the tasks that you have. So for you husbands, it's to make you fit to be the husband and the head of your home. For you wives, it's to make you fit to be the helpmate for your husband and the, and the, the caretaker primarily for your children and things like that. For you Patmos people, it's to make you fit for the tasks, the challenges, and the uh, ministries that are going to come your way, whether you head off to Brazil or to one of the, the mission spots or you go to college, you go to the university. There's, you know, there's more heathen per square inch on a college campus than there is in a square mile of Africa. Do you know that? <laughs> you could go to any of the secular colleges in the United States and you have the greatest mission field ever. But you better be fit. You better be complete. You better be ready to take that on because your faith will be challenged. But that is a great mission field for us. And for the purpose, it says there, the purpose is to do his will, which is well-pleasing to Jesus. Isn't it great when we know we're in the will of God, when we get that little confirmation, that little sense from the Lord that, man... What you did this weekend, what you did today, what you uh, are doing in your ministry and, and your outreaches, that you're in his will is such a great thing. And then in verse 22, he pleads, he, uh, he pleads in this prayer for us to take heed of the words of these exhortations. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. And this is really a short discourse that he has. But again, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, family from Sunday night in Patmos and the rest of you, all of you that are here in ministry, I appeal to you, bear with the words of exhortation of the writer of Hebrews as he has written it to you with just a few words. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you so that you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Let's pray.